Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon again with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, you're on the road this week. I am. Four states in three days, three different time zones. It's really hard to keep your time straight. That's bananas, but that's, you know, keeping changing it up. I get your, I guess you're seeing a lot of people too, seeing some people. I've seen a lot of our people. Now that COVID's opened up, it's, it's been, it's been great to get together with people. And, and what we're learning is the different way we work. I was with the engineering team, one of our engineering teams this week, and they started it before COVID. When COVID hit, they were they started, they did not, they wanted us to figure out how to let them work in the office during COVID. And one of the discussion points this week was to, to a person, none of them want to come back to the office, right? Talk about a 180 degree role <laughs> reversal or, or, or desire reversal. I don't know what you'd call it there. They're more effective. They have more time for work and for family. Right. When they work from home, they're finding ways to communicate. I'm all for sell, sell the offices and, and bring our people together at Top Golf or whatever we're doing once in a while. But that's not why we're here today. That is not why we're here, but that sounds amazing, by the way. Selling the offices, right? <laughs> no. Not if you're a commercial real estate developer, it's not. Hanging out at Top Golf, though. That would be fun. It was really uh, good to see our people and connect yeah. again. It feels good. Yeah, it's weird at first, yeah. but then you're like, hey, I miss this, actually. It's and I will like see fun. you next week for an in-person podcast. Maybe. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll talk about that off the air. Who do we have today? Yeah. What are we talking about? Very exciting topic. Oh, Kick us this off. is so exciting. Okay, so let's welcome to the podcast Marcy Andino. She is Senior Director of the Election Infrastructure Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or better known as EIISAC. Uh, at the Center for Internet Security. Also joining us is Trevor Timmons, chairperson for the executive committee at the EIISAC, who also serves as chief information officer for the Colorado Secretary of State. Marcy, Trevor, welcome. This is going to be great. A twofer. Yes, thank you. We're excited to be here. Thank you so much. So, okay, I mean, let's hit it, Rachel. Let's hit it. Yeah, I, I kind of want to start a little bit, though, uh, today. Marcy, you have been in the kind of election world in the trenches for quite some time. And I imagine in, in the time that you've been working there, you've seen so much change. And I, I think that's, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective as we kind of you know, roll forward to what we're seeing today. I think that, that uh, background and context could be really fascinating for our listeners. Thanks, Rachel. I did. I spent 19 years as the chief state election official um, for the state of South Carolina and uh, moved over to the EII SAC late last year and, it's been an incredible experience, and uh, I'm really thankful that I'm able to continue working with election officials and, you know, helping them to improve the cybersecurity Absolutely. of their election and infrastructure. And so when did the EIISAC kind of come into being? Is It's recent, yes, when we started seeing, you know, a lot of these things happening in recent elections in the last 10-ish, 5, 10 years? Yeah, relatively new. In uh, January of 2017, elections were um, designated as critical infrastructure. 
And the EII SAC was stood up in 2018. So we're just, you know, four years old. And uh, it feels like a lot longer in some ways. <laughs> and and what, what what does the EII SAC do? Just so our listeners know, I mean, I'm not sure they're experts on elections. I'm certainly yeah. not. We talk about ISACs a lot, but there are differences between the different ISACs. Um, there are, and we focus 100% on elections. So our uh, target, target audience or our members are state, local, tribal, and territorial election officials. And, you know, we work with them and we provide all types of um, no-cost professional services and products so that we can improve their overall cybersecurity posture. And does that, I'm assuming that includes information sharing, the communication mechanisms to better communicate across the different, the different states, the different election officials with the government and the like? That's right. That's an important, uh, important piece of it. We provide uh, intelligence and information sharing. Um, we provide them with uh, professional services, training, um, like tabletop exercises, and then we also provide products. Uh, we partner with leaders in the industry to provide products to help secure their networks. Okay, so Trevor, you're 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 in Colorado. You're you're the CIO, effectively. How does that impact you? I mean, what's the difference since 2018? What have you seen? Sure. Well, since the establishment of the ISAC, so I'll actually roll the tapes back a little bit to 2016. I mean, it was the summer of 2016. Okay. When uh, Jay Johnson, who was then the Secretary of Homeland Security uh, for the U.S. government, um, they held a phone call with elected officials across the nation. Um, I'm sure Marcy was on that phone call. I was on that phone call. Folks from our <laughs> office, um, and they what they were they were broadcasting that they were seeing mm -hmm. um, attempts from foreign nations um, to influence um, and affect uh, our election. In and was that the presidential election or one of the primaries or multiple elections? Well, so they had seen this ramping up, but this was prior to the okay. November 2016 presidential election. That phone call from DHS, mm -hmm. uh, and believe me, I don't, you know, I have talk, spent more time talking with three-letter agencies in the past five years of my career than I had in all of the time before that. Um, but they were, don't they usually have to kill you if you talk to them or something like that? <laughs> Fortunately, lucky. I don't work with those three letter agencies, <laughs> but they were reaching out because they had seen a couple of different things. They had seen, uh, cybersecurity attacks, right? Attempts to penetrate, uh, infrastructure in state and locals, uh, that are responsible for elections, but they'd also seen some disturbing, uh, kind of foreign influence operations on social media platforms. And so the Secretary okay. of Homeland Security was reaching out and saying, we do this work for critical infrastructure operators across these 16 sectors that have been designated as CI, as critical infrastructure. And he said, we're offering those services to the election community, state and local, so you can take advantage of those, even though you're not critical infrastructure, because we see this as a growing threat. And so they supported us. Again, that was early August of 2016, all the way through the election. And then, as Marcy already mentioned, uh, in January 2017, elections infrastructure was formally designated as critical infrastructure. Okay, so that, that happened in 16. We've got another election, another presidential election in 20. That's four years, right? Rachel, count for me, please. 
Yeah, I'm good, right? In 20, we have another election. We now have the EII SAC that's formed. How has the EII SAC changed the way you work, the way you communicate, the way you get information? I, I don't know. I mean, what have you seen benefit-wise? What's changed? So Marcy can talk about some of the free services that they offer. I can rattle some of them off. Um, they offer devices out to state and local jurisdictions called Alberts. They're essentially intrusion detection devices. They collect net flow information from state and local election okay. officials and push it up to CIS, to the EIISAC, so that if they see activity that is concerning from that net flow information that from the Alberts that are distributed across the nation, they can actually see, oh, we're seeing, we're seeing malicious traffic coming from this IP range. And we saw it in you know a particular jurisdiction. They can then go scan through NetFlow traffic and see if they've seen it in any other jurisdiction and proactively warn people, you know, about what they're seeing. Okay, that that's just one thing. Right. So so you're seeing attacks from oh, let's just say the Internet Research Agency in Peters St. Petersburg, Russia. We're we're seeing network traffic there. Be on the alert. Heads up get your people focused on this. Absolutely. Or, or maybe even the government will help. Yes. Them. So how many people take advantage of services like this? I, I imagine some states may say, I don't want the Alberts on my network. Well, I bet Marcy has up-to-date information, but most yeah. jurisdictions are taking advantage of the Alberts. It's really an early warning system. At the national level. Too. Yes. Even though elections are state and local activities, and yeah. please correct me, I'm not an expert here, their state and local activities, you're getting the help and benefit of the, of the na at the national level to ensure you can do your job effectively and properly. Absolutely. Okay. That's right. We okay, are so, stronger okay. together. Yes. Yeah. I think most things in life, I'd agree with you there, Marcy, that's, we're always better together. So the second piece, cause Marcy can, we may uh, speak about some of the other services and that uh, the EII SAC offers, but the other piece is really what you were just hitting on is the community because uh, prior to the establishment of the EII SAC, individual states, we talk to each other, right? Uh, individual localities, they talk to each other within their, uh, within their state, but they may not talk across political boundaries a lot, okay? So the EII SAC has given that structure, that community structure, so that we're all uh, gaining access to the same sort of intelligence information, alerts, warnings, guidance. Um, they have really become kind of the a focal point for pulling together information on best practices around cybersecurity, both, you know, risk assessment. So, you know, you can better understand maybe where some of your risks are, and then also on how to remediate those risks, how to mitigate those risks. And, and if you have a problem, let's say there's a network penetration, you, you know, there's a compromise on an election, election machine or something like that. And I, I don't believe in 2020, we, we had anything from what I understand, from what I've researched. But let's say that happens. Do you then have the ability to bring expertise in either from DHS at the national level, the FBI, and or work with other governments like yourselves that may have that expertise to help you? That is definitely the case. So it's another kind of okay. outcome of building that community. So in Colorado, we've had a relationship with our local FBI uh, for a while. Um, every FBI region office has uh, an agent that is specifically designated for election crimes. They're called an election crime coordinator. Now, prior to 2016, most of the election crimes they would have to focus on is actual voter fraud, right? Or someone interfering with an individual's right to participate in elections. 
uh, it's things like that. Really, since 2016, when attention really came to cybersecurity as a risk area in actually maintaining voter registration lists and the act of voting, that's when FBI, CISA, you know, DHS, now CISA, the EIISAC has really come into its own, I think, in terms of getting information out. Uh, again, that safe space for sharing information about what risks people are seeing, what sorts of exploits are being attempted, and then you know, proactively actually reacting uh, to those things um, and preparing for those things as well. Okay. And, and Marcy, sorry, Rachel, I'm dominating here. Oh, go ahead, Marcy. I was just going to say, if an election entity has an incident, uh, we also have an incident response team. So we are prepared to go out and assist them um, in the event that happens. And, and we being the EIISAC? The EIISAC. That's correct. So who, just for my benefit, and go ahead. Okay. I was going to say the EIISAC is part of the Center for Internet Security. Um, so we're a nonprofit, community-based organization, and we are led um, and guided by election officials in the EIISAC portion. But we also support, um, we also have the multi-state ISAC that supports state and local governments as well. So that that ISAC has been around for 20 years, where the EIISAC is relatively new. Got it. Rachel? Yeah, that makes sense. It's I, I'm just fascinated about, you know, particularly in the last, what, since 2016, you know, when they had that call, Trevor, just, you know, all, I think all that we, everyone's learned so much more about election security in the last however many years. And it's, and it's such a fascinating topic because there's the physical aspect, right? You know, there's kind of the digital aspect, but then there's also the social engineering aspect, you know, and I'm always, um, you know, kind of, how can you even address things like, you know, misinformation, malinformation, disinformation. I mean, there's so many different elements of that. I mean, does how are we trying to get a handle on that in addition to all the other stuff? <laughs> well, I'd love for Marcy to talk about some of the programs that the EIISAC has stood up. That would be great. Sure. And, and misinformation is a, is a very hot topic in elections these days. And uh, since late in 2020, um, the MS or the ESISAC has provided a platform where election officials can report misinformation, disinformation, or inaccurate information. And we encourage uh, election officials to report anything they see on social media that's just inaccurate or misleading if it's about their jurisdiction or about the election process. And what we do is, first of all, verify that it is coming from an election official and uh, we ask them to provide us with some information like a screenshot, a URL, so we can go out and locate uh, what they're seeing. And then we want them to tell us why it's inaccurate. Uh, don't just tell us it's wrong, but tell us why. Show us the statute, a regulation, their procedure. And then we pass it on to social media platforms. We don't make any decisions about the accuracy or inaccuracy. If it's reported to us, we simply pass it on. And this frees election officials up so they can do what they're there to do, and, and that's conduct elections. And, you know, many of these things come in when they're at their busiest and they don't have time to focus on, uh, you know, finding the, the person to report to at the various different social media platforms. So that's something we awesome. can take off of their plates and once it's submitted, we will follow up with the social media 
platforms and report back to the election officials so they can, again, focus on what they're there to do. That would be a I don't know about you, job. Rachel. I'm, I'm feeling very encouraged right now. Like things are working at the public private partnership level, the, the, you know, the, the, the nonprofit component. I mean, this is really government trying to do one of the foundational components of government. And, and it sounds like we're, we're doing it well. Yes. It, it really, I mean, I mean I, I'm reminded to, right? of the, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm reminded of the, of the Chris Krebs, who was the, the first director of CISA. Um, he, he did an interview I, during my research. I pulled this up on, on in 2020, November 30th of 2020, saying that they spent three and a half years gaming out every possible scenario, I'm quoting him here, for how a foreign actor could interfere with an election. Countless, countless scenarios. And he called the 2020 vote the most secure election in American history. Now, he probably got fired for that, and we love Chris, so you know we'll deal with that later. But I mean- Trevor and Marcy, would you, would you agree that, I mean, 2016, we, we recognized there were problems. The EIISAC is formed in 2017. You've seen progress. It sounds like the progress has been substantial, and I'm, I'm assuming it's continued on since then even. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it, it has been called, and it, it was, in my opinion, the most secure election but the threat landscape continues to change. So we can't rest on our laurels. We have to keep being proactive and looking for new ways to protect election infrastructure. We're going to get to the new ch- new threats in a minute, or maybe not new, but newly reported threats in a second. Trevor, you were going to comment. I was. So um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, uh, uh, with former Director Krebs. Uh, we spent so much time doing tabletop exercises, you know, training for... Uh, what could happen? What, what's a good response? What's a better response? Uh, talking to communications teams at the local, state, and federal level in terms of how we would respond, uh, you know, to funny questions or to issues that pop up. Um, the, the preparation really for the 2020 election, understanding that there are, there are folks who wish our government and our democratic process ill, right? Uh, they seek to leverage, uh, division amongst uh, U.S. citizens, one against another. Um, And so we saw a ton of that. I do believe it was the most secure election um, that we've seen. But, you know, it's interesting because um, so a a focus on cybersecurity and physical security has been around for a long time. Okay, the voting machines that people actually use to to cast their ballots and how they're scanned and tabulated and how the totals are brought up. I, there's been a regimen of federal certification for those machines going back for over 25 years. It's called the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines. And so the, the specifications, the testing, and how you would know that those machines are reliable, that's been, it's been well understood for a long time. There's always room for improvement, and I'm encouraged that uh, the U.S. Election Assistance Commission is the group that does those, uh, they develop those certification tests um, they're they're moving that forward so we can have the voting equipment uh, even certified and tested at a better level to address the evolving nature of the threats. Um, but the second thing is cybersecurity on machines that are network connected, because generally those voting devices, they're not connected to networks. They're not subject to exploits right. over the Internet. Right. But voter registration databases may be. 
And so those best cybersecurity practices, I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for a while, both in the election space and otherwise, um, you know, credit card security standards through the payment card industry uh, council, you know, those have been around for a long time. It's that same sort of mindset around cybersecurity, you know, detection, protection, response, and recovery. I mean, those are the same concepts that we apply to any of those state voter registration databases that may be internet accessible. I'm so encouraged by this conversation. I mean, you're, you're really protecting it like we like we would expect the banks to protect our financial information, our, our money, and, and it, it just seems like we're working and we're getting better. And, and you hear in the press, and I know it's sensationalized, right? All the risks and everything. And, and it, it seems, I mean, we aren't even connected to the networks with, ha- with most of the voting machines from what I'm hearing, right? So really hard, really difficult to change, to change a vote or, or mess that up, I'm betting from a, from a cybersecurity perspective. And we're doing a lot to protect ourselves. And I want to mention one other thing, because this was a point of emphasis uh, by Chris Krebs, is that um, after the Help America Vote Act was passed, um, there was a need to provide voting equipment that was uh, used that could be used by people with special needs. So accessibility of voting was a big right. emphasis of the Help America Vote Act. In the 2020 election, mm-hmm. over 90% of all of the votes that were cast in the United States were cast by a mark on a piece of paper. They were paper ballots. And so what that gives us is that gives us the ability to audit those afterwards. And so I, I know everyone has seen the stories, you know, about Georgia and Maricopa County and Arizona and, and all this. Um, and I think what is lost, particularly in Georgia, because they went very deep uh, on Georgia, people challenging whether that election was legitimate or not. Um, I think what is lost in the stories about some of these, uh, uh, you know, the Kraken stories about China flipping votes and everything is um, that that election was actually uh, audited at least three times. And they weren't looking at memory banks on a computer. They were looking at marks on pieces of paper, human beings looking at marks on pieces of paper to demonstrate, you know, to tally them up and see who won and who lost. I've seen some pretty unique um, cyber attack behaviors, like interesting ways to get into systems. Rachel, I can't recall any time in my past 25 years where I found ways to break into paper from China or Russia or a foreign country or a state. Like, I, I, I really think that would be hard. My <laughs> mind's going to maybe putting a 3D printer in place or something, uh, but I, I just don't see how you alter paper from afar as easily. So that's, that's awesome to hear. It, it really is. I mean, maybe you would attack after the counts are made and they're in Excel or whatever the, the form right. is. Hopefully it's not Excel. Maybe you would attack that system, but altering papers, really hard with keystrokes, unless there's a printer attached on the other end. Yeah, and Trevor really nailed it with okay. um, the accessibility of voters. Um, election officials and, and I guess even voting system vendors have always been challenged with balancing accessibility with security. You can have a system that's so secure, no one can use it, or you can have a system that's accessible to all voters, and that includes voters with disabilities, and that's very important. The vast majority of all systems that are in use today produce a paper record or start with paper. So at the end of the day, after the election's over, 
like you said, Eric, you have that piece of paper and that is used for auditing elections. And that is the official record of the election. That should provide a lot of which, security which, you know, that, to that, people listening to this podcast. So, so that, that brings up a good point, though. Even if you were able to break into the system digitally and alter the results, when you go back to recount, you're going back to paper and you would get a different result if the final results were at, were, were, were edited digitally That's right. or so. Okay, so, so that brings up a, a, a recent article that came out um, recent reporting, Politico came out with a report on 713, which happens to be yesterday, as, as we're recording it, probably a week or two ago as you're listening to it, um, where it's talking about trusted insiders. And this is physical humans, I believe, is the way their, their article reads, how they might seek to manipulate ballots or voting equipment from inside. So you're not worried about digital security from, from afar necessarily, but people cracking into these systems. What extent does to, to what extent does DHS or the EIISAC view this as a problem? I mean, how how are you thinking about that, Marcy? You want to start, and then I could finish. Sure. In, in light of recent events, this is um, this is a concern. And if you think about an election as the largest one day event in the world, um, you know it takes a lot of people to conduct an election. Election officials can't do it alone. They have to bring in hundreds and even thousands of poll workers uh, to be able to carry off elections. So, you know, they need to be careful about who they bring in. They need to thoroughly vet um, everybody that's going to be working in elections and only give them access to what they need access to. Don't give away the keys, you know, to the car if they don't need the car. Um, And then... I like to think that they should add to their training of poll workers just uh, a reminder that if they see something at the polling place that seems suspicious, even if it is the behavior of a fellow poll worker, that they should report it uh, immediately. Because, you know, these are the poll workers. I mean, we could not conduct elections without them, and they are our friends and neighbors and coworkers. Um, but you don't know everybody that comes into the process, and it takes literally hundreds and thousands of poll workers in each jurisdiction to pull off an election. So um, sometimes you're going to get somebody in there that isn't in there for upholding democracy, and you know they're going to take advantage of the system. So I think if you see something, say something. Yeah, and I just want to sage advice. I just want to tag along on what Marcy said. You know, those uh, those election workers, those poll workers that come in to do signature verification, to check that a ballot was returned by the person, you know, that it was sent to. Um, when those votes are being, uh, uh, when uh, ballots are being scanned, um, in the pre-election audits, right, uh, they call them logic and accuracy tests, where you take a known set of ballots, you run them through a scanner, you tabulate them, and you make sure that the results are 100% spot on what you would expect them to be. And then we also do elect audits after the election, post-election audits. We do a particular variety in Colorado called risk-limiting audits that is based on some really heavy math um, just to make sure that, that the outcomes are correct. When all those activities are happen, happening, they're happening with bipartisan teams. So you've got an R and a D who's watching an elections professional as they're going through these 
uh, through all these procedures. Okay. Now I, I think that's awesome. I mean, that's, that's how, that's how this has been done for a long time. Okay. But Eric, you mentioned the you know recent article on insider threats. Um, it reminds me of another phrase that uh, Chris Krebs uh, used to use and Jen Easterly, the current uh, director of CISA uses, and it's resilience. Okay. We need to have resilient systems. We need to have appropriate access controls. We have a chain of uh, custody logs. Um, I know in Colorado, we have 24 by seven video monitoring of voting equipment. Um, when it's, when it's in storage, when it's being programmed, we've got multiple eyes on. I mean, we're not leaving it over to one individual, you know, who's trusted with the keys to the kingdom. We actually have separation of duties, right? Which is, you know, it's a pretty common way of trying to provide protections against systems. Um, you know, that, that's just part and parcel of the elections process. And I, 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 one other thing I just need to add on, I think actually DHS and CISA, they're really well positioned to provide advice through the EII SAC uh, to state and local officials because they've got a ton of materials on insider threats within the classified information space, right? Um, there have been instances where people with, you know, clearances have gained access to information and then they're trying to leverage it, you know, for, for profit or whatever. Okay. Some of those strategies that CISA and DHS and the federal government have adopted around protecting yourselves from insider threats, they're directly ap applicable to the election space. Very interesting view. And I would add, while we're, we're talking about uh, insiders coming in with uh, nefarious um, intentions. It also can be a very in innocent intent or not intention, but it can be very in innocent. Something like an employee clicking on a phishing email, a bad link or opening an attachment. And a lot of times election officials do have to open attachments because they could be from military and overseas voters and it could be a request for a ballot. Uh, so it, it's important to remind all employees, whether they're seasonal employees or they're permanent employees, just to raise that awareness about cybersecurity and just make it part of your culture where people are thinking about it every day. And as they get busier, as it gets closer to an election, that's when it's really important to continue those reminders. And Marcy, is this type of education, I'll call it education, shared via the EII SAC? I mean, I, I've got to think of some really rural places where we've got volunteers who are serving as election officials who don't have an IT background. Maybe they're retired, they're, they, they haven't been in IT, they, they, you know, they, they just picked up email or something. They're not trained is what I'm saying as an IT worker or somebody might be in what a phishing attack is, what disinformation, misinformation is, how to deal with these things. Do you share that type of information also? That kind of sounds like maybe your Cyber Strong campaign, Marcy. Am I getting that one right? You are getting that one right. Ooh, tell um, me more. Tell me more. Absolutely. Um, all of those things are in all of our materials and our presentations. And we do have a cyber strong campaign. And it gives six steps for election officials to follow to secure their systems. But, um, you know, one of the messages and, and that I, I take is that cyber attacks can happen anywhere. And cybersecurity is everybody's responsibility. Um, and that's why they brought me on. They wanted somebody with election expertise uh, that can talk to election officials um, and, and speak their language, not speak cybersecurity to them. 
Um, you know, so my point has always been it's everybody's responsibility and the Internet is a is a level playing field. If you have a website, if you are if you have email and you're on the Internet, it doesn't matter if you are the largest county or the largest state or the smallest. It's just as easy for an adversary to reach you. And that's something that election officials um, have to deal with and have to acknowledge. And that's why these steps are for everyone. I like that. I like And they're free resources, too, which I think is amazing uh, for folks uh, to have access to that. And I like how strong actually kind of spells out the different steps. So it's kind of cool. <laughs> that's, that's right. The, the S in strong is stay connected. And that's the beginning of it is we encourage every election official to join the EIISAC. And if they are already a member, make sure that their information is up to date and that they're not just a member. It's not, you can't just check that box and say, okay, yeah, I join, but you've got to stay engaged so that you're receiving up to date information about what's going on in the election election cyberspace. And Eric, I want to touch on a couple of things uh, because you mentioned, uh, you know, the how many rural uh, government offices are actually involved in running elections. You are right on. Okay, there are some very large organizations, counties and cities that have election responsibilities. But by and large, there are so many small and medium sized entities out there that have this as part of their core responsibilities. And there are a couple of things that the EISEC is doing specifically to address those. Okay, one is um, endpoint detection and response software that can be installed on every device inside that elections office. Okay. It, and we're not talking voting machines here. No, we're no, talking no. the Windows computer the election official is receiving their EIISAC communications on emails. Absolutely. You name it, everything. Yeah, we're not talking voting okay. equipment. Yeah, we're not talking voting equipment because, again, that's not network connected. But anything that they're using to manage uh, email communications with uh, with residents and citizens in their area, you know, where they're getting the information that Marcy and the team are sending out. Um, so this is, I mean, this software, it's, it's what you find on a workstation in a bank or in any private company that is trying to protect themselves from advanced persistent threats and malware. And it's free and it's managed by the uh, operations team at CIS. I mean, it's fabulous. So who's providing that? Is CISA providing that capability? CIS is providing the funding that allows CIS and the ISAC to offer that service. Okay, so just so I understand you, and I'm dense sometimes. And that service is 365, 24-7, So they're providing the Albert capability, which is really network packet scanning, right? Looking at the network, what's going on on the network. They're providing funding and capability for EDR or XDR capability at the, at the client side also. So the government, the federal government is really supporting state, local, and tribal governments to ensure that from a cybersecurity perspective, we're doing everything we can to observe and, and address and react to what's happening on the systems and the networks as they relate to voting, the voting process. Yes. And I would say, I'd pull that back. And instead of saying the voting process, I'd say the elections process. 
because this, it really falls Thank into you. two different camps, right? There's voting systems. That is, right. how do you mark a ballot? How is it scanned? How is it tabulated? Right. How do you get totals? But then there's the voter registration process, which is, are you eligible to vote? Where are you going to go to vote? What content is on your ballot? What offices and questions will you be voting on? Right. And they're really two, two separate little kind of worlds. Voting equipment is not connected to networks. Um, voter registration activities, well, they have to be connected because individuals need to know, oh, am I registered to vote? Where am I going to go? When is election day? You know, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. And, and what I'm hearing you so describe. So what 2020. Go ahead, Marcy. Sorry. So what 2020 demonstrated is the is the value of having a layered cyber defense capability. And we talked about Albert and we talked about EDR, but we also have malicious domain blocking and reporting. And, you know, this stops a user from connecting to a harmful website. So all of these things work together to further secure uh, election infrastructure. Rachel, if we had a sound engineer or a budget for one, I'd feel like we should be playing some patriotic music (laughs) right now because... I'm feeling so good after this conversation compared to what you read about in the press all the time. There are volunteers and the government and we're all coming together to run a good election process. Yeah. And what about, and I'm, I'm really interested too in this recent, you know, the Information Infrastructure Jobs Act of 21, right? There was that $1 billion pledge over the next four years for state and local governments to protect their elections. I mean, what's the perspective on, you know, kind of how that's going to further the cause here, uh, where it's most needed. I'll jump in on that because I've been in several of those conversations. Um, the, you know, that the, the, the charter is a billion dollars over four years, right? Um, 80% of the funding has to go to locals, right? 20% can go mm-hmm. up to states. You can slice and dice it a little bit. If you cooperate with another state, the state can do more to build out central capability, you know, that's accessible to locals. Um, but the, the cool thing is um, there are so many needs at the local level in terms of cybersecurity, yeah. both assessing where their risks are, having capacity when there is an incident to respond. Um, I mean, the locals are really starving for those kinds of resources. I think the IIJA is a fabulous approach to that. It's not specific to elections, right? But right. the thing is, uh, elections are run by lo- by people within local governments. As we are increasing the protections and improving the, the cybersecurity posture of the local governments, um, yes. we're actually improving, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So everyone yes. is going to get better over the span of time. And uh, I'll give you an example. So uh, in our state, our office, even prior to the EIISAC funding endpoint detection and response software for workstations, um, we did that in Colorado. Okay, Um, but we can only do that for elections associated machines in the county. There's an assessor and there's a sheriff and there's everything else. And we couldn't with our funding, we couldn't cover all those other devices. Right. With the IIJA funding, those locals can start to cover some of those other business units within their local government. And so we're going to protect ourselves. You know, our charter is elections, right? But now we can protect against lateral movement by bad actors who are trying to gain a foothold on one side of a system and try to traverse over to something else. Exactly. Because it's like, what is that term, Eric? Uh, Island hopping? 
we were talking about the other day? I, yeah, you love the island hopping. Yeah, <laughs> I, I call it pivoting, or you know, you get a jump point. But yes, island hopping. But what what I'm what I'm really hearing, is, you know, coming from a island hopping is a great mental. Picture. Yes, it is. Yes, unfortunately, we want to stop it. If you're in the Caribbean, it's a good thing, or Hawaii, but yeah. in this case, we want to stop it. But what, what I'm hearing here, and, and I'm coming at it from a cybersecurity perspective, that's my background. And Trevor, you, you being a CIO, I'm assuming what you, you can confirm here, you're, you're dealing with the exact same technologies, the exact same problems that we have in regular state government, non-election non oriented state government, in banking, in any industry out there, in government, whatever it may be, we're, we're using EDR, we're using network scanning, the same technologies, the same types of threats. I mean, insider threat. We're dealing with that in the government all the time, right? How, is the, how are nation states trying to steal America's mm -hmm. information? You're dealing with the exact same thing in the, in the election process. And you're dealing with it, as we talked about a few minutes ago, in the same types of ways. We can share information, best practices, tools, knowledge. And I'd even go so far, and Marcy, correct me here, but the EI ISAC is operating in very similar ways to the other ISACs, distributing information and capabilities. It's, it's, it's almost the same type of playbooks and it's working. Rachel, it's working. <laughs> when the EI ISAC was stood up, CIS leveraged their experience running the MS ISAC. So that model was applied uh, to the elections infrastructure, I said. Oh. That's such a I've, it's I've, like it's I've all coming a together. Ton. Yeah. yeah, I, I have I, too. I, I have too. I've yeah. been a fan of the ISACs. I, this is the most inspiring conversation I've had around the ISACs, though, in in years. And and that's not derogatory in any way. It's just yeah, yeah. Like it, it's 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 just more encompassing here than the financial ISAC, maybe. Where, where it's state, local, tribal, it's federal, it's, it's, it's nonprofit. I mean, it's really working and that's an awesome thing. Yeah. 2024, it's, it's more secure than 2020, <laughs> more secure than 2016. Prediction time. I think it will be. Absolutely. We've got to keep moving forward. <laughs> we're, you know, it's, um, someone said uh, about uh, cybersecurity, you know, within the elections context, you know, it's a race without a finish line. Um, yeah. uh, we will never. A, I've not heard that. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah we yeah. will never be done. Um, we will continually be facing new th and evolving threats. And we're going to have to continually look at the tool belt and look at the tools that we use and look at our approaches uh, to preparing for, uh, you know, potential vulnerabilities and exploits. And then how are we going to respond? How are we going to protect ourselves from that? How do we make our systems and our people resilient in those areas? Yes. It's, it's never going to stop. Um, the nice thing is we've got people like Marcy who comes out of, with a background of running elections at a state level, helping locals do that well. Um, we've got people at the ISACs who, uh, you know, the MS ISAC has been providing services and counseling and, and, and uh, you know, information sharing to state and local tribal territorial governments for years. You know, at the EI ISAC, we're only four years old, but we've been able to stand on their shoulders and actually move that out within the elections context. I mean, it's, it's, I, I love the way that you're kind of characterizing that, Eric, because it really is inspiring. Um, we yeah. can never be complacent, but it really is inspiring where we've, where we've come from and then where we're going. Yeah. 
Right. And, and we're four years into this. Two and a half of those years have been during COVID. Think about that right. challenge. And it's still working. This is a good, this is a, this is a good show today, Rachel. A lot of times it's like <laughs> it we, we, we come to the end and we're like, okay, so things are pretty rough right now in the world of cybersecurity. But in this case, they're rough in the world of cybersecurity, but we've got a plan. We've got people, we've got structure, we've got capability and we're executing. And that is awesome. Yes. Yes. My next, right now, everyone's talking about the midterm elections, you know, and I think these kind of messages are important for people to hear, you know, what's going on, what's being done. Right. I mean, that's critical. So it's thanks for the great work you guys are doing. Cause it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, my next meeting right after this recording is with CISA. We're going to be talking about the JCDC and the uh, <laughs> cyber information sharing yeah. and collaboration program. And I am going to open the meeting up with the EII SAC is absolutely working. All right. Thank it. you so Thank much. Thank you, Eric. We, we're just so happy <laughs> for the opportunity pleasure. to kind of share some information about it. Um, we're doing great work with CISA and DHS's support and obviously with our members at the state and local and tribal level. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Mercy, EIISAC, if people want more information, common citizens, you know, election leaders, whatever, how do they get more information? Just Google it. Our website is cisecurity.org. And uh, there's a wealth of information out there. Yeah, cisecurity.org. Okay. We don't have a special effects coordinator, but we can link to it in the show notes. That's we can a, that's absolutely link to it. Exactly. We have budget for that. Don't you worry. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Rachel, you want to take us home? Yes, yes. Well, Trevor, Marcy, thanks again for joining us today. This was such a wonderful conversation. Uh, and to all of our amazing listeners out there, what do we like them to do, Eric? I know I just got you getting a drink. We like to smash, smash. the subscribe button, yes. listen to the shows, recommend us to everybody out there. There's incredible content coming to you every week. Share it. That's right. Share, especially, you know, this episode, you guys. I mean, this is the kind of information that needs to be shared far and wide. You know, put it on your social channels, you know, talk to your families about it because this is really important to, to know. Uh, what's being done. Uh, and again, go to the website, cisecurity.org to, to learn more. Cause this is, um, ahead. This is the kind of critical work that's, that needs to be done and it's getting done in, in a very, very good way. So until next time, everybody be safe. Thanks for joining us on the to the point cybersecurity podcast brought to you by force point. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 